Hello and welcome to the Byte Interview Special. I am Emily Rubin, and today we are talking to Morgan Leckie, a professor of English at Ball State University. Morgan graduated from Miami of Ohio's graduate program in composition and writing, and currently she teaches first-year writing and professional writing. Morgan also runs the Jacket Copy Creative, the English department's immersive learning course. So hello, Morgan. Hi. Do you not run that anymore? <laughs> no, that's fine. I was looking at like uh, the profile online. I was I like, know. oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's okay. I just didn't want to get cred for something. That did you used to? I did. Oh, I started. Cool. I did one semester, just kind of fell in, but Kathy Day does that now. Oh, that's cool. And it's awesome. What is it? It is a PR firm in the English department, and they do in-house sort of public relations stuff, social media marketing, and they also take clients around campus. That's super cool. Well, you were involved in it, so we're going to take it. (laughs) So just kind of introduce yourself a little bit. Like, what do you do here at Ball State? Like, what are your interests? Um, I teach first-year writing, which is um, one of my really big passions. That's how I learned to teach university teaching. Um, It's introductory courses like 103, 104, the classes that nobody really wants to take and kind of dread and sometimes put off till they're seniors. Uh, So I teach people across all the majors, which is kind of fun. And then, as you know, I teach professional writing right now, 431, which is rhetoric, writing, and emerging media, which is pretty cool. And it's a lot of design stuff, including audio. (laughs) (laughs) What we're doing now. (laughs) And um, I also, in the fall, teach 213, which is digital literacies. So digital writing things. Yeah, that's super cool. And we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, but you're a feminist, and that's important because we're going to be talking about She-Ra and kind of how she as a character stacks up and by a modern lens and even back then. Like, is she a feminist character or not? I don't know. That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's even more interesting is that you've used She-Ra as sort of an artifact in your classes. So could you I talk have. about that a little? I have. Apparently I'm famous for that. <laughs> um, in my first year writing classes, I particularly in my research class, so 104, um, I frame that course as doing cultural criticism as research. Uh, I think it's an easy way in for a lot of majors to start thinking about how they can talk about um, how texts construct the world around us. So usually I bring in some kind of model, and as you call it, artifact, and she totally is, for my students, who this year they were born between 1998 and 2001, so She-Ra is pretty old school for them, the original, not the reboot. I didn't know there was going to be a reboot when I started teaching with She-Ra. Um, I also use She-Ra in my WGS classes, so I've taught WGS here and at Miami University. That's Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. I forget, um, which is really rewarding, particularly as a feminist, but she is really an interesting sort of way to see exactly what we thought of as this idealized, empowered woman of the 1980s post-women's movement. And she's as empowering as she is really problematic. So (laughs) she's fun. (laughs) You can be both. Why not both? But yeah, let's kind of start with the 80s in general, because there's some very strange regulations that were happening at the time that kind of allowed for uh, questionable marketing towards children. So in the 80s, there was the Action for Children's Television, which was a nonprofit child advocacy group founded in 1968, and it did disband in 1992. And I believe that's because of financial issues. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> and the aim of this group was to diversify and improve children's television programming. In the 70s, they moved to eliminate advertising towards children that is deceptive or manipulative. And as a result, the National Broadcasters Association made a code revision that limited time to commer- commercial time to 12 minutes per hour in children's programming. So 
also, they also kind of have, like, TV hosts appear in ads. So you kind of have, like, Mickey Mouse selling you, like, cereal. I don't know. Something like that. In the 80s, Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, deregulated children's television. And that kind of allowed for marketing to be a little more aggressive towards children. And this allowed toy companies to work with networks to create animated tie-ins for shows. And that's your My Little Pony, your G.I. Joe, He-Man, She-Ra... Uh, I think there's, like, the Gummy Bears show, even. It got really ridiculous. Like, <laughs> like, I remember the Gummy Bears. Were kids watching that? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's so crazy. Kids I knew were. And this kind of brought criticism from the ACT, who said these programs were nothing but commercials to sell a product. So they were trying to say, like, yeah, they made a show towards kids, but it's not, like, meaningful or there's not really plot. They're just kind of there to be, like, buy She-Ra. She's a great Barbie doll. And that's what they have an issue with. In the 90s, ACT helped to implement the Children's Television Act of 1990, but this was largely ineffective because stations failed to keep records required by the act. And these records would kind of detail how much time um, stations were using to pander to children, like commercial time to sell them stuff. And toy-based shows would get by on a loophole. Um, they would say that their content was actually educational by introducing, like, morals. So they'd have, a lot of the shows have, like, moments where the character will go to the audience and be like, don't do drugs. And then they're like, this is educational. Like, I know the Sonic cartoon, they actually have an episode where they're like, yeah, some kids crawl into the washer and die. Don't do that. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, But... Has children's marketing really changed? Are television shows still being used as commercials for products? Or is there more substance to modern shows than just selling figures? What do you think? Well, this is a really interesting and cool question because I forgot to mention that I'm also a parent. So <laughs> now. <laughs> but in the in the 80s, I mean, I could really speak to or at least reflect on, I think, um, I remember feeling marketed to. Now, I was a kid, so it's not like I thought about it in that kind of insidious sort of – I didn't. I wasn't cynical <laughs> yet. Um, but I don't know that that – I don't know that that wasn't kind of empowering in some kinds of ways to have at least to be considered a consumer. I know the parents are buying the toys, but as a kid who watched He-Man with my older cousin who was raised with us, um, seeing She-Ra, you know, and characters who were – female and who at least there was some representation of something like me, right, uh, and being marketed to as a little girl, I think you could read that as kind of empowering. Um, not that it always is, but um, depends on how much you want to critique capitalism. But I do think that being defined as a consumer comes as a female person comes directly out of the women's movement. Um, most advertisements before the 1970s were only directed towards men, assuming that adult men were the only people in control of capital. So I think that maybe there's some interesting sort of implications of that because I wasn't thinking about it. I was just a kid in front of the TV in the 80s. And um, I loved, I did not know that about Reagan making that deregulation, which is really fascinating because I do remember commercials just being aggressively exciting because it was like, and yes, I will get She-Ra's Castle as well. <laughs> um, or My Little Pony, everything. Um, and yes, I remember the gummy bears. They were great. I don't know about the content. Um, I think now as a parent, I would say it has not changed. Mo for sure, children are at the center of... Um, in between, you know, whatever is educational, I would say, like, the content of shows like Dora. And my kid really likes Dora. Or at least I've foisted that upon both of my children. Dora. Um, and lots of other educational programming at PBS, things like that. Like, PBS is nonprofit, so you don't quite have as much marketing. Um, 
But it's it's ridiculous. And my kid has my littlest one, my toddler even. Uh, she knows how to say like I want that, and it's something <laughs> that I'm like, no, you do not want a crybaby doll. But apparently now you do because you've seen it. So I would say that that pattern is definitely still in place, and we're really really. Um, Focus on pleasing kids. That's how you're supposed to raise them. I think that started in the 80s, and it definitely continues now as a parent. So there's a lot of pressure to consume things, right, just to make your kids happy. And they will come and tell you what they want at all ages. Even my 11-year-old, she knows exactly what iPhone is the thing, you know. <laughs> so, Well, that's really interesting because I have – when you think about consumerism, you always usually think of it as a negative thing. But the way that you're, like – that you're framing it is actually interesting as an empowerment thing for women. I've never really considered that women just aren't considered or they weren't. So I'm glad you talked about that. But how do we differentiate between just creating toy lines, like shows based off of toys to sell them versus like, oh, this is an action figure based off of a popular character. What's the balance? I don't think there ever is. I think what motivates everything, particularly in American culture, I mean, I would say it is money. You know, which is unfortunate. doesn't mean that you can't find something empowering in it. You know, like even Dora is a great example because in terms of representation for little girls, you know, she wasn't an icon I grew up with. And that would have been so cool to have um, a small person who's female, who's not white, um, doing adventurous things, you know, and actually, you know, making change. Um, speaking two languages, these are really kind of empowering representations. Is she just educational, even though it is, uh, you know, a PhD in child development who created her? I still think it's about selling the backpacks and the toys. I mean, ultimately, if you can't, if you're not going to make money at something in American culture, unfortunately, it's probably not going to air. That's why stations like PBS and nonprofit sort of media production is really important, right? Because it's not, it's motivated, it's underwritten by, you know, public money. So that makes it sort of public domain and it's ours. So I think maybe that's the balance. But unfortunately, we continue to have like government cuts in those areas, which is a bummer. So I guess we just donate to to things like NPR and PBS and public media. But I don't know. Um, I know it's hard as a parent to to think. It's hard as a parent, but it's it's hard. You're a woman, you know. Um, so it's hard to consume things ethically mm-hmm. or to not overthink it, you know. Yeah, it's also hard too because when you think about just watching kids, I mean, kid shows as a child, you're not thinking about these deep political issues. You're just like, oh, that's a pretty dress. I like that character. Yeah. So yeah, pink. I mean, already my small child, um, who's two and a half, she already has this strange affinity to pink, which she didn't always. And I definitely think it's because toys that are marketed to her are always pink. Yeah. You know. So um, just little things like that, you know, that it's we internalize those messages. So how do you prevent that? I don't know. I don't know, Emily. Tell me. We'll figure it out by the end of this podcast. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) Well, before we can get to the pink and the girly things, we have to talk about the macho masculine things because that's just how it works. Mm -hmm. So before She-Ra came He-Man. And before we kind of get into He-Man as a character, what was your initial impression of He-Man? Like, what does the character say about masculinity, do you think? I'm going to try to put on my small little little kid Morgan lens to <laughs> make this really like an interesting I was there you know and He-Man was a big deal so I'll try to remember how I thought of He-Man as a kid versus how I critically think about him now um, because now when I watch He-Man and yes I have 
I have all the DVDs of She-Ra and He-Man. I thought they would be cool to share with my kid, but they're actually <laughs> kind of boring. Um, but He-Man's... <laughs> He's, he can, he's a little queer. I mean, I actually really think his models of masculinity are much like She-Ra, but we'll stick to He-Man. Um, they uphold some really traditional kind of um, tropes of what a man is, but they also challenge it. But when I was a kid, I actually saw him as just a very manly man. His name is He-Man. So we knew exactly how we were supposed to understand him. But I think it was important that he was kind. And whether that was sort of to get around that marketing loophole, the little lessons where He-Man says, you know, now kids, they had that at the end of every episode of He-Man and She-Ra. They had a moment where they told you some moral lesson. And I I think that was important as a model of masculinity, um, men being kind. You know, uh, He-Man was very nice. That was very true of his character. And I think that that was an important complex sort of representation. So I thought men were, of course, big, strong, masculine, save the day, but also like heroic and always on the side of good. You know, the ideal masculine sort of model would be that. What's kind of interesting to me about He-Man is that I think, at least for my generation that didn't grow up with him, he's kind of remembered as just a meme. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it's not like people are like, oh yeah, He-Man, the cool guy. Um, And I don't agree with this, but a lot of the joke stems from him being kind of coded as mm, queer. Yeah. And while I don't think that's an appropriate joke to make, that's what he's remembered for, especially in the modern lens. He's wearing pink. He's a blonde man with kind of a long, it's like a mid, it's a somewhat feminine haircut. Um, he has a lot of skin showing. And it's really interesting in comparison to like your G.I. Joes that are just coded to be completely macho and masculine, especially in the 80s when that wouldn't have been like, that'd be frowned upon back oh, then. Oh, yeah. Adam was his, you know, person name, which you know. <laughs> Having expert knowledge of human. Um, Adam was also like always baking stuff. He was very <laughs> tender. He was very sort of, there was lots of feminized things he did. You're right about sort of objectifying his body. I mean, I see why modern, contemporary, and even adult then viewers saw this as, you know, coded as these sort of gay messages that his masculinity seemed gay. Um, you know, he's, I don't, he, He-Man wasn't sexual at all. So, you know, I don't know who he was into. Um, but uh, it's it's interesting that his model of hyper-masculinity reads now as, you know, somehow homosexual in his, like, desires, which is fascinating to me. So when He-Man was airing, was was it just ignored, the coding, or was it somewhat controversial? Oh gosh, I was a kid, and having done more focused on, re- on research-wise on She-Ra, um, I think then it was. I remember kind of picking up on this when I was doing work just to prep using She-Ra for a lesson plan that I think – don't quote me on this, podcast listeners um, – I think some of his creators might have actually been gay or some of it was sort of deliberate sort of um, imagery to kind of – I don't know, poke holes in that sort of uh, violent masculinity of like G.I. Joe, give boys some other models. So deliberate representation there. But again, I would have to kind of go back and research that. But as a kid, not at all. Yeah. I mean, he was he man. He was this big, tough guy. When you watch it now, I've watched it with my my oldest kid. and It's like silly how, um, you know, just how tender he is compared to a lot of other masculine sort of icons of that, toy icons of that particular moment. And 
and even movie icons for adults like Rambo and Indiana Jones and, you know. So I think he was definitely an anomaly. But as kids, we, we didn't see that at all. He was just a hero. Right. So let's give some context to He-Man really quickly because <laughs> that is important to She-Ra because she's basically He-Man but woman. <laughs> He-woman. <laughs> so basically the whole entire premise is that he's this prince of Skull and the ruler and he's going to be the ruler of Eternia, which is like this other world. It's fantasy. So he has a secret identity of Adam, but they look the exact same. It's like Sailor Moon and they don't change at all. Um <laughs> And he transforms by raising a sword, the power sword, and by yelling, by the power of Grayskull. And he has this weird green pet tiger named Cringer. It's like Scooby-Doo. He's terrified of everything. But he transforms into Battle Cat. It's, it's, Battle Cat's so rad. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a kid's show. And it was started by, it's actually started as a toy line by Mattel in 1982. So this was not an example of the toys coming after because he was popular. No, this was a show made for the toys, as is 80s fashion. And the animated television show came in 1983. It ran two seasons with 130 total episodes, which is actually quite a lot for the 80s. They used to do like a season and an end. So... With that in mind, we can actually move on to She-Ra, which I think is a more interesting character overall. Um, what is the difference between <laughs> sorry? What is the difference between the two, other than the obvious in terms of appeal, popularity, etc.? You know what's kind of cool? They are they were very similar, at least as kids. And the understanding was She-Ra is He-Man's sister, but she has the same sort of deal. Okay, so she's Adora, and she holds aloft her sword and says. For the honor, it's a little different than his, for the honor of Grayskull, maybe power is taken out because, I don't know, that's less feminine. Not sure we could overthink that for probably an, a, another hour. Um, but really, her story was really similar. She was kidnapped and didn't know her real identity. And then she realizes with the power of this sword that she is actually Adora, Adam's sister. And she, too, has a place in saving Etheria and being its rightful ruler. And... The interesting thing about Adora is that, like Adam, her character, I mean, they look exactly the same. Her hair gets more fabulous as She-Ra. Um, but I noticed right away as an adult viewer with my with my daughter, who loves She-Ra, um, that her voice changes, and so does He-Man's. They both, they're both of their voices, the register drops when they go from their regular self to their, you know, empowered self. So there's a lot of interesting... Um, masculine sort of features that She-Ra has that were, I think, really deliberate. Her body is muscular. All the bodies in She-Ra, all the female bodies are the muscular sort of definition is really defined in the animation. Uh, she's really tall. She's very large. Um, so she's not necessarily, I mean, she's equally as sexualized as, as He-Man for sure because she's not wearing a lot. But she looks really buff, like she's as ripped as He-Man is, but the female equivalent. So in some ways, the kind of exciting thing as a kid, as a little girl, was actually having your own He-Man, right? Like it was you. It wasn't. So I think in some ways her parallels to He-Man are really important. I think as you say, your instinct to say she's more interesting, it is more interesting because she's female, you know, and she's a superhero, which there weren't a lot of at all. You know, some of our sort of popular, the girl to be were, it was Barbie, 
and it was Gem and the Holograms came a little bit after She-Ra. Those were important sort of, you know, icons growing up. But She-Ra was by far and away the most sort of exciting and empowering. And you could go out and play with a sword and go outside and battle things. And that wasn't really, we weren't really invited to do that a lot. But that's really unique to the 1980s because that was not, no little girls before me were doing anything except baking, taking care of babies and, you know, having fashion dolls. So it was, we were the first generation of girls who had a, a superhero, you know, much like today's Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman or actually Wonder Woman of the 80s was pretty cool. <laughs> the Invisible Jet. I watched that too. <laughs> but she was my fave. So would you say ultimately she was an empowering character in that iteration? You know, for me, and I think back, um, sure. But there's some problems. She was also, you know, 10 feet tall. She had this muscular and yet very idealized body type that I was not going to achieve. And I was a chubby, you know, sort of non-blonde kid in the 80s. Um, that was always the ideal thing. It was this impossible blonde hair that you can't get unless you sew it in, no matter who you are. But that brings me to, I mean, I, I think the the idealized white, you know, um, hero, female hero, is really problematic. For me, was it? Well, no, I was a little white girl, so going and buying that doll wasn't as isolating or alienating as I'm sure it would have been for a lot of the kids growing up in, in my community who weren't white. So I think she was really problematic in that way. Did I notice that? No, but I also didn't notice, you know, Barbie, and I wasn't gonna grow up and be her. But I think, um, you know, looking back, I think, what, what a really problematic and limiting icon. You know, but I took her as a kid to be empowering, I think. Well, that's an interesting duality. <laughs> <laughs> You're both. It's not just black and white. She can still be empowering, but through modern lens, be very problematic. Yeah. So. Which is why she's fun to teach. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So she's also interesting because she wasn't introduced in the He-Man show. She was introduced in a movie. She was introduced in He-Man and She-Ra, The Secret of the Sword, which released in 1985. It was animated. It was basically the first five episodes of what would be She-Ra, the cartoon, just stuffed into a movie. <laughs> it's a horrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's like you can't make a bunch of TV episodes be like have the narrative structure of a movie just by slamming them together. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> but I guess, do you think that was done so they could test the character? Probably, or it might have been just to give it a really big release. I mean, I'm assuming that, and as I said, in some ways, this is really powering post 1970 stuff where it's like, girl consumers, we can sell to them, right? I, I really, having watched it again through modern eyes, I bought the box set, really excited to share this with my kid and went, oh man, this art is, whew, <laughs> haphazard. It's a little slapped together. Um, by plot and everything, um, even the animation. But I do think it was to make a big splash, maybe. I mean, in watching it, it was like, wow, they really introduced her as like, da-da, we have this whole own movie of the girl that you can buy. And I, it worked. I mean, it was really exciting. I remember watching that with my sister. Like, we lost our minds. <laughs> so it was effective. But I think it was probably for marketing, actually, if I have to think about it, you know. Like everything is. <laughs> they don't want to empower us, even if they did unintentionally. So, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> well, after the film released, 
which was really just the first five episodes of She-Ra. They were like, okay, let's do the show. And the show is She-Ra, Princess of Power, and that also released in 1985. And He-Man definitely had more episodes. Um, they, they both had two seasons, but the first season of She-Ra had 65 episodes, and the second only had 28. Does that indicate that it was less popular as a whole? It might have been. I think it was easy to get... You know, the movie, it was easy to get a lot of consumers and viewers on board because you had He-Man in there, too. But we know if it's a girl thing, you know, boys, we've kind of socially conditioned them to be like, nah, I'm not going to do that. So um, I also think, you know, the show, she had her fabulous, she gets swift wind, it's rainbowy, there were castles. So it really does become more clearly for girls. So that might have had something to do with this sort of waning popularity. I mean, I watched that show for years. So they ran reruns every Saturday, Um, which, you know, that was part of it too. Reruns were, you were limited by your TV. So, you know, you like watching the same thing over and over again. Um, So maybe they didn't need to create more, but it seems pretty rushed. I mean, you've watched uh, the animations like we drew this really quickly. And it's the same. Sometimes they use the same battle scene. And you're like, I saw that earlier in this very episode. Also very stiff. Like, they'll just be standing there. They move as little as possible. It's like anime. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, anime fans. (laughs) It is. Yeah. I don't don't know. I I learned about He-Man before She-Ra. And I think most people probably did, too. And I'm not sure if it's because of a popularity thing or just because He-Man came first. He's what... You know, Shira's based off of it's his universe first and yeah. foremost, <laughs> which is you know whatever. Ugh, that's He's, so that's so true about everything. It's a man's true. world. He man, get out of here. <laughs> I mean, it's not like she's a princess of power or anything. Like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but I think it's interesting if this show came out today, and I know there's a reboot. But if this version of Shira came out today, would it even make it past a few episodes? Uh, well, you know. Um... The imagery of it, I think, is still um, really seductive. I think that, you know, tall, idealized, blonde woman doing it all, I think we still are kind of um, enthralled with that. I do. Um, I think those things are changing. I mean, I hope so. But even just like Victoria's Secret Angel Catwalk show is going out of popularity. So I don't know. I think she might not. But having now had two daughters, I do see that... um, you know, we're still kind of enamored with gendering girls in this way that prioritizes sort of Eurocentric beauty standards, makes um, impossible expectations in terms of their bodies and in terms of what they're going to accomplish and uh, doesn't really represent them as complete characters. So I think she might actually, maybe, maybe she moved more, but, um, you know, possibly, but I don't think so, mostly because we are more interested in complex plots and characters that reflect um more realistic and lived experiences of women. You know, I don't think womanhood is, I don't think it's white anymore for sure. So I don't think that would, and it's definitely not as sort of cisgendered hetero. I don't think, I really genuinely don't think it is. So I don't know that she'd fly. Her rainbow horse swift wind probably would with little girls because rainbows and unicorns are still kind of a big hit, at least in my house. We still have My Little Pony, too. Oh, My Little Pony yeah. is still a thing. So, like, so. I think Switchwind can make it. <laughs> Switchwind might be, be a the spin-off. Only. We all know. <laughs> yeah, well, let's move on to the new she Because 
It's really interesting how different it is from the original. So She-Ra and the Princesses of Power premiered on Netflix on November 13, 2018, and it was animated by DreamWorks Animation. It was executive produced by award-winning author Noelle Stevenson, and she's primarily known for an online comic. It's a fantasy comic called Pneumonia, and Lumberjanes is another comic that she's done. And she worked as a writer on the animated series Wonder Wonder Over Yonder, and that is a Disney Channel show, and it's adorable, so you should watch it. (laughs) On Rotten Tomatoes, the show has a 100% critical rating and a 71% audience score. And I do want to uh, just remind anyone listening that Rotten Tomatoes is an aggregate website. Um, So when a score is compiled, it's based on a bunch of different people's ratings. It's not just like one singular score. So the 71% is people giving it not fresh ratings, which is bad, and dropping the score down. So it's interesting that the audience score is lower than the critical score on this one. Um, I have a few theories as to why, but what do you think? I kind of want to hear your theory. I loved it. So maybe I should start there. I'm biased because um, I really enjoyed it and I binge watched it. Um, And a student who had been in that lecture, that one seminar where I'm sharing, here's an interesting artifact I could write about. And I used the old She-Ra and she told me there is a reboot. And then she watched it and said, you need to watch it because she knew I'd want to overthink it. And um, I loved it a lot. So I don't know. I've never thought about this question. Um, What would I think? I don't know. Probably people being really bugged that it was changed, which people seem to be freaked out about with reboots. And um, I'm not one of those. I mean, and I love the original. She- I stand by that, even with my critical, you know, sort of lens of critiquing the original She-Ra. That's, that's an important text in my world. Um, but I was cool with all the changes. I loved them. I was like, oh, this is so much cooler and better. Um, but I would think people are probably freaked out. Um, probably maybe some of the sort of queer storylines, characters that don't fit, um, you know, the expectations, particularly visually. Um, I think people probably bristled at that a bit. I mean, looking at the reboot of Ghostbusters, (laughs) you know, people freak out. This isn't what I remember. So, um, and that could be sexist. I mean, heterosexist, I think. Homophobic reaction. I'm not sure. I think, (laughs) my hot take, uh, is that... I think well, you kind of t- you already touched on it basically. Sorry. Like, no, no, that's perfect. <laughs> like that means that it's now official. <laughs> it's just like, there is a lot of non-heteronormative portrayals in the show, and I think when people think of Shira, especially male audiences, they think of an idealized Shira, a, a sexy adult blonde female that they um, that they can watch frequently but this is not that at all this is she's a child in this and you know she has shorts underneath her skirt it's not it's not as sexy it's not sexy it shouldn't be sexy so that's my take on it um but what are other some what are some of the other key differences between this show and the original shira well, you know what? I ha- We haven't even talked about it, and we haven't even thought of it. I'm learning so much from you. I didn't think about the original, because my gaze wasn't a male gaze. I didn't think about the original um, She-Ra in terms of how it's presented for the male gaze. I think the reboot is definitely not. It is for young women and young girls um, and young men. But I definitely think it it just erases that sort of <clears throat> we're going to sexualize these characters or there's going to be implied, you know, um, implied objectification of them. I mean, you're right. It isn't um, at all. So 
I think probably that's a big part of maybe male audiences not liking it. Maybe Bo is a problem. I don't know. <laughs> maybe Glamour. Uh, many of them. But I just um, – I was really excited to share it with my kid because I thought, well, this is much more empowering. So that was my hot take. We can unpack that. <laughs> it's also interesting because this version of She-Ra was created and produced by a woman, whereas the original She-Ra, it was two men. So when you have a female working behind the scenes in writing, how does that change how the character is perceived? And does the idea of the male gaze kind of apply to the original, even if unintentional? Can you help it if you are a male creating a female character? You know, I think we have these this question in creative writing, you know, in fiction writing, everything from fiction writing, screenwriting. It's we're wrestling with this because I think in a lot of our media, um, and this is Gina Davis's big thing, right? It's like um, I think we do see look the power of the person writing the narratives matters, and the way that a man is going to write a woman is going to be different, and especially if that man is heterosexual, that makes a big difference. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, I had never even thought of that. So that's awesome. I do think that that makes a difference in the new She-Ra. It was more like, oh, this is what I w- would have wanted She-Ra to be. I actually was kind of jealous. I was like, oh, these kids now, this is the best version of She-Ra. It was all of the things that I found empowering as a kid, fighting for something, um, a journey of sort of self-discovery, that you get to be the main character, that you um, get to fight for others and save them, right? All of the sort of heroism of She-Ra without all of the sort of unrealistic expectations of She-Ra and the one-dimensional sort of aspects of She-Ra. The new She-Ra is particularly compelling, I think, as a female viewer, because she reminds me more of me and women I know. And that goes for all of the, I mean, I think Catra, that's Glimmer. I was particularly like Glimmer, the new Glimmer, resonated with me because I don't remember the old Glimmer a whole lot, except that she was pink and purple. My sister had that doll. I don't know (laughs) why. That was her deal. But the new glimmer is kind of short she's stocky her body looks different and she looks a lot like i did at that age and now (laughs) um and that was just so empowering for me to see to root for somebody like that and see her as heroic she's not i mean she is defined as a sidekick but none of the characters actually in the new she-ra really seem marginal which is also interesting they also are developed so i think a female writer recognizing that women are actually fully human and not just for a male gaze or how male how male writers think they are or want them to be i think that's definitely a factor yeah it's 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 interesting too there's definitely more of an emotional appeal to the show than the old one you mentioned uh, you said she was one dimensional in the original <laughs> i cannot remember i could i've seen all of shira and i could not tell you anything about her personality in the original she's just mm. kind of a woman yeah. She's kind of like a cardboard cutout. Mm-hmm. Like, that's fine, I guess. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but this one, there's like complexities between characters. There's you there's time to build relationships and let them all have their own characters. And I think because it is a woman writing, like, that's a big part of it because we tend to focus more on emotions. It's just kind of how it is. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. So 
Regarding the controversy against the new She-Ra, um, the original She-Ra creator, J. Michael Straczynski, and he is a co-creator, um, he commented on the situation on Twitter, and he said, As the guy who co-created the character of She-Ra and her universe alongside Larry DeTio, though Marvel named her, a few thoughts. Note, I am in no way connected with the current show, so I'm speaking both as an outsider to what is and as an outsider to what was intended. Yes, male characters tend to be idealized in form and proportion, but female characters tend to be objectified. There is a profound difference between the two, and failing to perceive that distinction is pernicious. Pernicious. Pernicious? Got it. <laughs> <laughs> I am a professional. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that he himself realizes that and how is, she's being like decoded by people. What do you think? Oh, gosh, it's like if you realized that, did you know that then? <laughs> right? Um, I, you know, I think we're challenging that. An older, older generation, it's just like, I mean, really for what she was, the original She-Ra, she did reflect. And that's why she's an interesting artifact to teach. And the next time I teach with her, this, this semester I taught with Indiana Jones, so I did something different. Um, the next time I teach with her, I do plan on using the reboot um, because I think it's a great way to see... Um, a, a stamp sort of of a time and what our attitudes were. And I think for the 1980s, she is just the perfect way to understand how the women's movement affected consumerism and art, um, limiting as she is. And so maybe the creators of She-Ra have also grown as things have changed, you know, um, I would hope. Yeah, <laughs> I would flip and hope. What's he doing now? I wonder if he's <laughs> creating anything. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also important to like this show is they're both directed towards children, but this one actually treats children with a little more respect. I think like it lets them grow to like these characters and see these complex situations. So how important for younger viewers is it to have somebody they can relate to within their age range? Is it more or less important than having a powerful adult woman to look up to? Uh, you know, um, maybe both and, both and, you know, <laughs> all, all of the above. Uh, there were certainly in the 1980s, there also began to be more um, kids being left alone kind of plots. Uh, and I think those were also important representations, though they usually were boys, um, you know, who were off doing things. Um, but I'm trying to think of specific examples. The Sandlot's a really popular one. Um but, you know, I, I I think that seeing adults that we can emulate and grow to be is certainly important. But I know just give you my my sort of anecdotal evidence. I think my own daughter, who when I started watching the original She-Ra with her, I ordered the DVDs. It's like, we're going to get into She-Ra. She loved it. Um, so it was certainly resonant with her. But she was about six or seven. And then she's 11 now. So we watched the reboot. We binged it. And um, this was just, I think it, it was, and again, she's older, but I think it, it asked her to really sort of reflect on the relationship she has with people her age, but also there's older characters in this Shira and Glimmer and her mother. It's particularly interesting and I think fruitful sort of narrative to generate good conversations with young people and, um, you know, the adults in their life and what those models bring um, to their own sense of self. So I would say, you know, I, I like the direction that we're going in in terms of media, especially that my daughter consumes, because that's not the only example. There's also Star versus the Forces of Evil, which is a Disney program, which my kid loves. Um, I'm just kind of growing up with. 
And I think engaging between adults and young people and looking at young people as just human beings on part of their journey, I think is a really helpful. I wish that we would have had a little bit more of that when I was a kid. You know, kids were like a separate thing. So I think that's important for boys and girls, yeah. you know, for sure. Absolutely. So there is one more controversy surrounding the show. <laughs> and it's body types. Um, so this show is really interesting because most of the cast looks completely different from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, different sizes, different skin colors. It's really diverse. But that isn't always taken so well, especially online. Um, curves and not being completely skinny, that is often seen as, you know, pandering. And that's what a lot of the discussion online is. And particularly, you know, you have like mage characters that use magic, um, you know, sword fighters. And the argument that I've seen frequently is that like, well, they're part of the resistance. They can't be, they have to be skinny. <laughs> it's very, uh, it's very narrow argument. So regarding that backlash, Noelle Stevenson said in an interview with The Verge, the resistance to our version is the same kind of resistance we're seeing to the fact that we have character designs with diverse body types, with characters of all ethnicities. That is something I think fans need to enter the show understanding and appreciating because it's not something we're going to compromise. So what is your take? Why is that controversial? I don't know. I wish I could. I wish I could have had an audio of my face, which was kind of like barfy emoji. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not surprised that yeah. there's that backlash. I'm just disappointed. Um, I think we're obsessed with, you know, health as this BMI and particularly for female bodies. But I think we also sort of police men's bodies, too. And I, I say we. I don't. You don't. Um, I think that's I just think that that's kind of a ridiculous critique. I think it's sexist. I would hazard to guess. I could be wrong. You can tell me. But I would I would hazard to guess that that is, um, you know, male fans who are upset. Um, I think we normalize and police women's bodies more. And as a feminist, um, I think there's nothing more damaging, right, than saying that y- you aren't strong or you aren't um, someone to emulate unless you – Again, have the the things I see as problems with Shira, uh, which are the fact that a she's very clearly white, and as is every character on that show. I mean, there's just no representation of, of for anybody else who doesn't have white skin or light skin. Um, and I think you know, being thin for women is particularly dangerous that we keep sort of idealizing that particular body type, um, sometimes guised as health, which I don't think it has to do with. I think it's about power and saying that women should be small and that that's somehow empowering when it isn't, you know, sometimes taking up space and being big is important. So um, I also think, you know, it's interesting about Catra and um, – Oh, gosh, I can't remember the character's name now. Scorpia. Um, those are women who automatically look fierce in that, a young girl and a woman who who just look dangerous. And I think that Scorpia particularly is probably a little bit bothersome for some viewers because she takes up space. And that's part of um, the, in- the fascinating thing is her personality does not, right? You know, she is kind of this softy, right? And she's a nurturer. Um, I think exploring those dichotomies, looking at female power as bigness, but it can also be smallness, um, a, a male character like Bo, who's littler, right? Um, 
I think those are important sort of representations for kids to see. There's not one way to be masculine or feminine or anything in between. And that's one of the things doing, you know, even in an introductory um, writing class, I think it's important to encourage uh, young intellectuals to start to interrogate messages like that because they're really damaging for the most part. They're limiting. Yeah. So something else in terms of diversity that the show does, and you touched on a little bit, is that it diverges from the norm in terms of heteronormative, like what society perceives perceives as heteronormative. Bo, especially one of Shira's friends in the show, um, he is dressed more feminine, uh, bright colors. He's surrounded by powerful women. He sings. Uh, he shows no romantic interest in the women in the show and so forth. Katra is the direct opposite. She dresses in a suit. She's fierce. Um, no characters explicitly LGBT, but they are coded to not be the norm. Well, I hate that word, the norm, but, you know, heteronormative. And there are definitely scenes that encoding that suggest non-heterosexual tendencies, especially the tension between Adora and Katra, and I guess Scorpia and Katra as well. In the Verge interview, Noelle says that absolutely every show that has made strides in LGBT representation makes it easier for shows that come after. So we owe a huge debt to Steven Universe for showing that you can have a cast of majority women, a bigger mythology, a space opera epic feel, and explicit LGBT themes. You can point to that and say, this can appeal to audiences. Trust me, I can make this work. So how does the rise of LGBT representation or non-conventional ideas of gender in children's cartoons affect younger viewers? You know, I get a little emotional about this. And I didn't expect to. I told you that I texted my sister and said I was going to talk about this on a podcast, and she was pretty excited about it. We both grew up with She-Ra. Um, she loves the reboot mostly because she really identifies with and loves Catra, the new Catra, not the old Catra. Um, I think growing up, my sister's gay, growing up with models of femininity like She-Ra that did not show her that there were other ways to be a woman was particularly, I think, damaging. It took her a long time to come out and to kind of understand herself. Um, I get emotional about what that, what a character like that would have meant for somebody like my sister. And then as such, what it means for my kids. It, I think it, it really is normalizing um, sexualities and gender representations that are, they're real. They're happening, whether we want to sort of deny that and say you can't wear that suit to your prom or what have you. Um, and I think those are, you know, we know in the worst case, not normalizing all of the sort of the spectrum of gender and sexuality leads to kids who eliminate themselves, right? Um, and if it affects suicide rates. So growing up side by side with a, a woman my who's, you know, now a woman my age with an experience that excluded her, experiences of media that excluded her, seeing how that has changed. And yes, over time, Steven Universe is great too. Um, I love that one. Um, but I think, you know, it does make me a little bit emotional, right, to think about what that would have been for us as kids, because I do think it would have had an impact. And I think particularly the, it also offers for young people an affirmative sort of place 
to look to for entertainment and art and see something like themselves and some possible iteration of the feelings they're already having. You know, Bo ha- seems to kind of, it's an implicit crush on Seahawk and Catra and Adora do have, they have this tension of friendship, but attraction and love for each other. And I think helping kids through that, young people, especially tweens, um, through those kinds of complicated feelings without inviting a sense of shame or there's one way to be, I can't, I mean, that's exponentially important, you know? So why do you think it tends to be these animated children's shows that are the ones delivering these messages of acceptance and diversity? You don't really see that as much in the live action realm. Is it just because animation's non-threatening? It's not real? <laughs> Probably. No, that's yeah. so sad. It's a, you know, it's a fantasy genre. It's also like, well, it's just everything's wacky here, you know. Um, her hair is purple, so maybe you can stretch um, people's sort of willingness to go on adventures even of um, sexuality and identity. Um, I think so. I think genre has a lot to do with it. But I also think young viewers are going to be less resistant. I do. I think they're going to say, oh, yeah, of course you would maybe have this conflicting feelings with this friend of yours or someone you're not supposed to like, but you do. Or maybe you're just more comfortable in a bow tie and a suit. And I think they're less, you know, the kids are so imaginative and young people are so much less socially conditioned. They haven't internalized a lot of that. So maybe you get away with it. I mean, I would say a she reboot like Steven Universe is every bit as much for the adults, (laughs) too. So, you know. Yeah, these shows are definitely more mature, not even in their themes, just their appeal to adults, I think, is really powerful as well. And that's not really something you saw in the 80s. From what I gather, I wasn't there. It seems more like they're the type of show that you plant your kid in front of the TV and just pretend it doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. So I think we're really evolving in terms Mm -hmm. of what we're letting our children be exposed to. So ultimately, these two discussions of the shows in mind, which She-Ra is better in the modern lens? (laughs) Um... Well, most definitely, without a doubt, and this is, of course, just my opinion, um, their reboot. But I think it's like any reboot. It's it, it really expresses growth and reflection on all of the things that were really great about that character. And then how that character, all those feelings of empowerment, how do we do that now for a modern audience and with the knowledge we have about gender, sexuality, race, representation, why it matters, Um so, you know, I think it reflects she were gro- growing up, even though she got younger. <laughs> I think she grew up, you know, like all of us, as we all should. So I think that one's better. <laughs> but, yeah, I'd, what would I watch? What would I sit down and watch? Definitely the reboot. Definitely. <laughs> I'm not binging the old She-Ra anytime soon. I can't see myself going to the old <laughs> no, Until my little one might want to watch it, but I don't even know. Then I'd probably just be like, reboot. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I understand that. So is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't that you want to comment on or anything? Oh, heck no. This was so fun. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, you made me think about things in new ways. And yeah, this is really cool. Well, it's really great to have you because you're very knowledgeable and you actually grew up with Shira. I'm just an outsider looking in. I'm looking at it for the complete modern lens. So that's a little unfair. I'm your historical source. I am your artifact, Emily. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> She's my artifact. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I'm your host, Emily Rubin. And with me, I have the wonderful... Morgan, lucky. (laughs) (laughs) I put her right on the spot. Thank you all so much for listening. You can read all of our content at ByteBSU.com and the Ball State Daily. You can follow us on social on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at ByteBSU.com. Thank you so much for listening again, and I will see you next time.